Literature makes you feel, and it can get you thinking too. But how do you move from signs on a page to thoughts and feelings? And why does fiction sometimes feel more real than the world around us? My name is Karin Kokkonen, and together with my colleagues from the Literature, Cognition and Emotions Project, LC for short, we will discuss these and other questions in the coming weeks. Today's guest is Hugo Lönnhauk, Professor of Biblical Reception and Early Christian Literature at the University of Oslo. Hugo, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for inviting me. You work on something that's called Apocrypha. That's true. Um, texts which deal with God, Jesus, the Apostles, um, but which somehow didn't end up in the Bible. My first question to you, what is your favorite Apocryphon, is that the singular um, text? And, and what story does it tell? Oh, it's very difficult, of course, to, to choose just one uh, from, uh, from such a great number of texts. But um, to mention just one uh, rather amusing example, um, I would choose a text that we have uh, preserved in, uh, in one Coptic manuscript deriving from uh, Upper Egypt, that is the, the south of Egypt. We know that it was... Uh, Produced in the year 981 and donated to a monastery of Mercurius uh, at Edfu in Upper Egypt. And in this uh, manuscript we find a text which is supposed to have been written or performed by Timothy of Alexandria, who was um, an archbishop of Alexandria in, uh, in the 5th century. And uh, Timothy is, the, he is kind of the narrator in this, uh, in this text. And we, at the beginning of the text, he is basically giving a sermon to his uh, congregation in Alexandria. And he starts telling his congregation about uh, the fact that he is going to tell them about uh, the angel of death, Abaton. But he does not go directly into this story, but he says that he once he was, uh, rather, actually quite frequently, he went on a trip to uh, Jerusalem on a pilgrimage because he wanted to see all the holy sites. He wanted to see the, the place of the resurrection, the place of the crucifixion and all of these places. But he also wanted to, to visit the, the library of the apostles. He went to the library, he uh, talked to the, to the librarian, an old priest, and he asked him to see a text written by the apostles about the angel of death, Abaton, because, as he said, uh, I want to, to know about uh, his nature, what, what's, who, who is he, and uh, what, what kind of uh, purpose uh, does he serve. So the old priest, he goes and fetches this uh, book on the investiture of, of the angel of death, Abaton, and uh, what we then uh, get for the rest of this text is basically pseudo-Timothy reading this text to us. So he starts reading this text. And then we get, of course, another narrator, who is uh, one of the apostles, uh, who tells us about uh, a dialogue between Christ and the apostles on the Mount of Olives, where Peter, the apostle, asks Christ to, uh, to tell them about, about on the angel of death. He says, because you have already told us about Michael, the Archangel Michael and uh, the Archangel Gabriel, how they got their, their current positions. So please now also tell us about Abaton. And Christ says, yes, I will tell you everything without hiding anything from you. So just listen. And he starts to, to tell about how this all hangs together. And basically, he starts with the beginning, with the creation of the human being, 
and he tells a story about how God wants to, well, he basically, the father and the son, God and Christ, they decide to make a human being. In order to do that, God sends for an angel, and he sends the angel to fetch clay with which he is going to make man, make Adam. And the angel goes to fetch clay, but when it comes to the clay, the clay refuses and says, no, 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 you shouldn't take me because this will only lead, uh, only end badly, because uh, this human being you're going to create will uh, sin and this will not, not be good. So he returns, he, the, the angel returns to, to God and says that I can't do it, so God sends another angel. And the same happens. So he sends another angel and another, another angel until the seventh angel, which is the angel Muriel. And uh, he has no pity with the, with the clay and takes the clay anyway and gives this to, to the father and the son and they make Adam. Later, this angel, he gets the role of, of the angel of death since he had no mercy, shown no mercy to the clay at all. Uh, so therefore, he becomes the king of all humanity and uh, basically collects all the souls of people when they die. So uh, you get the story of the fall too in this text and also the, the story of the fall of the devil. The devil falls because he, uh, he refuses to, to worship Adam because uh, the devil was already, he was already created because the angels, the archangels were created before Adam. And when God uh, orders all of the angels to, to worship Adam, then uh, the devil and uh, his angels, those who follow the devil, they refuse. And as a result, the devil is thrown out of heaven. So this is uh, a story we find in many of these Coptic Apocrypha, in fact, uh, not least in a, in a very long and interesting text called uh, The Investiture of the Archangel Michael, which is then also referred to in The Investiture mm. of, the, of the Angel of Death, Abaton. And all of this you find in the Library of the Apostles? All of these uh, are supposedly found in the Library of the po Apostles, but only some of these texts actually have this uh, elaborate frame narrative. Mm -hmm. So uh, while this text on Abaton has this uh, narrative, this, this frame, the investiture of, of Michael does not. But it's the same type of text, and they clearly overlap and they circulate in the same uh, milieus. Mm. Can you say a little more about these milieus? Um, I mean, where... Who comes up with the idea to, to supplement the Bible and, mm. and who would be interested in, in reading about that and hearing about it? It's a very, very good uh, question. And of course, um, now I have to say that the, the, the Apocrypha that I am concentrating on are Coptic Apocrypha. That is Apocrypha written in Coptic, which is the, the final phase of the Egyptian language uh, when they started to use uh, Greek uh, letters in order to, to write Egyptian which means that I have texts and uh, manuscripts from the, the fourth century, basically, uh, after Christ, uh, until um, the 13th century. So it's basically in this time period that, uh, that I'm working. <clears throat> and in this time period in Egypt, uh, it is quite clear that if you look at the, the manuscripts, the manuscripts were produced and used by monks. Almost all of these uh, manuscripts, we can be quite sure, were produced by monks. And in the and we actually have no <laughs> clear cases where these manuscripts were not produced by monks. Um, so the monks were certainly copying and reading these texts, who actually authored the original stories, the original works is a different question, of course. And in in many cases, especially with the early ones, uh, they were authored in, in Greek uh, and then translated into Coptic. So then we don't really know when some of them 
probably derives from uh, from the second century and uh, third century and fourth century. But so then, of course, later you also get a greater percentage of text authored in Coptic directly when you get to the sixth and seventh and eighth centuries. So the the period that you describe. I mean, in Europe, that would be the Middle Ages. Is yeah, is that a period category that works for Coptic as well? Not really. Uh, you can talk about uh, late antiquity and uh, Byzantine uh, time period, and into the early Islamic uh, period in Egypt, since uh, Egypt was uh, conquered by by the Arabs in the in the seventh century, mid seventh century. And so these... then you have the the early, after that the early Islamic period. Mm. And these apocrypha are particularly Coptic phenomenon. No, you also have apocrypha in mm. uh, in many many other languages. Uh, myself, in in my research, I have uh, focused on on Coptic apocrypha. Uh, but when we look at, of course, the why did they actually compose these kind of things? Mm. Um, I think we can uh, draw the comparison with modern fan fiction. Actually, there's an impulse for people to want to know more about the characters and events from the biblical story world, what they have read about in the in the Bible, basically, in the canonical texts. And uh, people start to elaborate upon uh, these characters and events and uh, tell additional stories, quite similarly to, to how people today uh, write new stories based on, uh, on story worlds like uh, the ones from Harry Potter, The Lord of the Rings, the Marvel Universe or Star, mm. Star Wars, for instance. That's interesting. So were, were these apocrypha meant to be read alongside the Bible? Um, or to what replace is, them. <laughs> or, well, um, I mean, what mm. is the, the dynamic between, yeah, I guess at that period there was already a, a sort of canonical set of for evangelists or I yes. don't actually know. Yes, um, uh, basically the canonization process started uh, relatively early and uh, you have a major part of that process in the in the fourth century. When we look at these texts, uh, a majority of the Coptic Apocrypha were certainly uh, intended to be read alongside the biblical texts and not intended to replace them. Mm-hmm. But there is a question concerning some of them, whether they also, whether there was an intention or an aspiration for um, authority on the par with the, with the canonical texts, like for instance with the, the Gospel of Thomas, or, for instance, the, the Secret Book of John, which are among the earlier uh, apocrypha that we that we have in Coptic. And is that something about a community wanting their own apostle? Or is it, as far as I understand, in fan fiction, quite often the impulse is that you don't like the ending. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you write a new one, or so you're somehow dissatisfied with the way in which the story goes. It shouldn't end like that. Yeah. That's, that is, uh, to some extent, uh, what we find in, in some of these uh, texts too. Especially in many of the earlier texts, we have uh, texts that argue that uh, the material world was not created by uh, the supreme deity, by, by, by God, but by a lesser uh, creator God. So that's basically a reinterpretation of what you find in the, in the canonical texts, uh, basically turning a lot on its head. And why would one do that? Uh, if one, for instance, uh, wanted to uh, to explain why the world is not uh, a perfect place, mm-hmm. how could you uh, reconcile the idea of a perfect uh, heavenly father, a perfect God, uh, and a less perfect, uh, even bad uh, material world? You can postulate, uh, basically, a lesser creator God mm. and... Uh, 
blame it on someone and blame else. Blame it on uh, on that uh, figure instead. Um, so what you, you describe here sounds like uh, an incredibly fascinating, but also incredibly complex body of text that, that sort of dances around um, the canonical setup. Yes. How does a, a cognitive approach help you to make sense of these texts and exactly the relationship to, to the canonical Bible? Uh, a cognitive uh, approach can basically help us to um, to, to use what we know about uh, how the mind works, of course, in the... Uh, in the modern times, and use uh, use what you know about um, the workings of the human mind in order to uh, more easily uh, interpret uh, or analyze uh, our ancient texts and come up with uh, plausible interpretations of those texts. That is, we can uh, we can experiment with different contexts for the text, different reading groups, what we know about them, and then basically interpret the texts using uh, cognitive uh, theories uh, of uh, interpretation uh, in order to help us look at uh, what interpretive possibilities, what meaning potential uh, resides in the in the texts. So uh, in order to do that, I have, uh, for instance, uh, used, uh, used blending theory or conceptual blending theory, which was uh, a theory uh, that... Linguist uh, Gilles Fauconnier and uh, literary uh, professor Mark Turner came up with in order to to basically understand how people connect uh, mental spaces uh, mentally in order to to come up with, a, <laughs> with something new. So uh, basically, uh, basically it's a it's a method in which uh, you can. Uh, can analyze the the way in which uh, metaphors work, but also uh, you can also analyze the way in which uh, metonymy works. But also, as I've shown, you can use it uh, as a framework for uh, for analyzing uh, intertextuality to how when you read a text and uh, there's an allusion to a different text. Can you give an example? Then you have two mental spaces that basically mm. uh, overlap and create something new. So. Uh, yeah, well, you have basically uh, texts that, for instance, talk about the crucifixion. There you have, for instance, uh, Coptic Apocrypha dealing with this. And uh, they only, of course, make certain elusive remarks sometimes to, to what, we have, what we know from having read the, the, the canonical texts. And uh, basically, they, they presuppose a knowledge of those texts and what happens when you read. And you get an, a mental space of, of what you read. You, you easily uh, then blend that with uh, connected to mental spaces of what you already remember from having read about the same uh, event in the, in the canonical texts. And so, connecting these mm. things, you come up with something, uh, often something very new. Yeah, so you make new links between what you know and what is new, and yeah. you fill the gaps. But I guess you yes. also throw new light on. Then you can throw uh, new light, especially on the on on the old text too. You can then, uh, for instance, uh, then read again the the, uh, the canonical text and see what those texts might have meant. Things that you 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 didn't already think about, for instance, that. Uh, uh, before the creation of Adam, uh, seven angels had already been sent to to gather the the clay, as I, I mentioned mm. from that one text. Or the fact that uh, Adam may not have been created by God the Father himself, but by lesser angels or by a creator God. And that, of course, allows you then to go back and 
yeah, read the Bible. Reread re- the Bible and understand uh, the canonical biblical text in a new way. So basically, uh, you can say that uh, what the Apocrypha do is that they present uh, the reader with uh, additional building blocks, uh, mm. additional uh, blueprints for the for the biblical story world. And that is also what is another, of course, uh, cognitive perspective that uh, you can use on, on this material is to, to use uh, cognitive uh, narratology and use the, the concept of a story world and how that, how that works on the basis of, uh, of multiple narratives. So a trans-narrative story world, a trans-authorial, trans-narrative story world. That is a story world that is created in the mind of the reader on the basis of uh, more than one narrative and narr- narratives basically uh, composed by more than one author mm. and where everyone can meet yes everyone else and and god has a little brother yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and these story worlds where, where this blending and, and this interaction takes place were nevertheless written as you said earlier on and and copied in monasteries would they also play part in, say, monastic life? Or is that this idea that, you know, there's a library of the apostles mm-hmm. and if you go to Jerusalem, you can ask the librarian to pull you a copy of this and that story. So there seems to be a, a link between this obviously, yeah, transcendental story world and the real world. Oh, yes, definitely. There are definitely links, both, of course, historical links uh, and uh, links with the, with the real world. I mean, these uh, stories are, when they're set in the real world, you have lots of uh, uh, dialogues between Christ and the apostles, for instance, set on the Mount, Mount of Olives. Uh, you have the library of the apostles in, the, in Jerusalem and, uh, and things like that. Although, of course, uh, sometimes these texts are quite confused. So you, you, in one of the texts uh, called The Wisdom of Jesus Christ, you have the reference a reference to uh, to the Mount of Olives in Galilee, which is of course wrong, but it's uh, it's what you find maybe in that another text, Mount so. of Olives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, but uh, I mean uh, the 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 connection between the real world and uh, and this uh, imaginary world, this story world, is of course very important also for the use of these texts in in monasteries because they were used in the in uh, religious uh, festivals, for instance. So in the in the festival of Michael, they would uh, read uh, the investiture of Michael to to the other monks and probably also to to visiting lay people who visited the monasteries during these feasts. Which is interesting because in these texts you also often get uh, references to the exact dates on which events in the in the biblical story world took place. For instance, uh, on what day was the, the devil thrown out of heaven? We on know what, that. Yeah, it's that's uh, that's described. And on what date uh, uh, was uh, Michael the archangel invested in his current position, put on his throne and given his uh, his crown and his staff and everything? It was on the on the twelfth of Hathor, which is uh, an Egyptian month. On that date, of course, uh, was also the the festival of uh, of the Archangel Michael, which would be celebrated every year. So it's part yeah. of a of a ritual, and I guess, I mean, one of the things that you you write about in in an article that I've read by you is this question also of memory and the way in which these apocryphal texts in the monasteries um, build. I guess I don't know what the verb is that you would use. Build memory. Yeah. 
Uh, it's very interesting because we know from um, from several of the earliest uh, monastic uh, communities in Egypt, the Pacomian monastic community, which started in the fourth century, and also uh, the famous community of the Archimandrite Shanute in the late fourth and early fifth century. Uh, we have preserved a lot of uh, monastic rules by by these uh, by the monastic leaders of, of these uh, communities. And it is quite clear that there was a quite strict uh, educational program for for the monks. For instance, they had to to memorize uh, a lot of the of the Bible, large parts of the New Testament, including the Gospels, the letters of Paul, and also also Psalms. Uh, they needed to to memorize the whole thing. So, of course, uh, with all the monks having read. And memorized all of these uh, these narratives, so it becomes really part. It becomes of the, part of their whole uh, mental world, and, yeah. uh, embodied in a way, uh, also and and distributed also across across the community with the the community sharing the same memory, which again uh, helps us understand how and why they could understand the really complicated, elusive. Uh, theological uh, writings in that community, so like some of these uh, more complicated apocrypha. And, of course, equally, it, it, it really shows us uh, why the control of what the monks were reading uh, also was very important. So it's a kind of it's an aspect of thought control, censorship, and in a, in a way, uh, brainwashing too. So who, who was in control? So in control, you had the, the abbots of the monasteries mm. were in control. And we know from Shanutus monasteries, for instance, that they had a rule saying that uh, you were not allowed to bring into or take out of the monastery any writings without uh, the, the abbot uh, clearing that writing uh, because there were certain things that the monks were not supposed to, to read. That were not part of their story world? Yeah, uh, that would, for instance, uh, this would, for instance, uh, in- include uh, certain apocryphal texts that some of these uh, monasteries would uh, rather want to keep out of the of the collective collective memory of the monks. So, were the, I mean, from my understanding, there are m- many monasteries in yeah. in the area that that you're studying. Mm-hmm. Would you say that each of them has their own, yeah, I don't know, version yeah. of of the <laughs> the biblical story world then? Yeah, that's uh, one of the interesting things that uh, they would have their different versions of the biblical story world based on uh, on the corpus of texts that uh, the monks could read and were reading, and we know that they would be reading different things in different monasteries. And for of course, uh, one of the reasons why a monastic leader like Shanuto, for instance, who was a really harsh and authoritative, uh, authoritarian even uh, figure. It was important for him to 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 control what the monks were reading because it's it would be much more difficult for him to uh, to use his very elusive uh, rhetorics based on the canonical biblical texts and also um, to teach and uphold uh, Christian dogma in the way that he did uh, if the monks were allowed to read the whole bunch of additional texts that would basically uh, come up with uh, with different versions of some of these uh, key tenets. Like, for instance, it would be difficult for Shanuta, and he writes that in an anti-heretical text that we, we have preserved from him, that uh, he was not very much for texts that argued that there were several 
different worlds existing and not just one, for instance, or that the, the world was made by someone else. Uh, so he was very much against that kind of apocryphal mm-hmm. text as we find in, for instance, the, the Secret Book of John. So so there are, even in those communities that are, seem to be built on apocrypha, there was still the thought that there is something like heresy if you use the oh, wrong yes. kind yes. of apocryphal text. Yes, and you can see that many of these texts would have been heretical in certain communities, but not in not in others. Mm. So we have to assume that the rules were different in different monasteries. We also see that uh, the nature of apocrypha changes over time. So uh, you can say see that the, the later apocrypha are usually closer aligned with uh, with what we would regard as orthodoxy today than what many of the earlier texts were. Uh, which does not mean that they are not still strange, but they are closer aligned with uh, some of the main uh, basic uh, theological dogmas. So, uh, for instance, you have a, a text called The Mysteries of John, where John the Apostle is taken up to heaven by a cherub and shown things uh, answering uh, John's questions. In that text, for instance, we are told that um, in the beginning, Adam and Eve were all clad in, in nails, you have on your the nails on your finger oh, your right. fingernails fingernails yeah. or toenails uh, but that was basically the the body they had before the fall so uh, that body was removed taken from them uh, when they f- fell from grace and what all we have left of that original body is our fingernails and our toenails but at the same time that's a text that uh, basically keeps to all the important christian tenets mm-hmm. so from the way in which you describe it, on on the one hand, you also talk about fan cultures and the, the story worlds of Marvel or Harry Potter or mm-hmm. something like that. It seems quite familiar mm-hmm. that there are a certain set of texts that, I mean, also for fan culture, we describe as the canon. Yep. And then there are these extensions to it. So on the one hand, these yeah, biblical story will seem to be very close to what mm-hmm. I think many of us are familiar with. On the other hand, um, these bodies covered in fingernails um, <laughs> and also this idea of heresy strikes me as, as something that is still foreign, I think, to, to our way of thinking mm-hmm. about I think it's not things. that different necessarily because you also have that... Uh, in several fan communities, of course, you have uh, strong discussions uh, of canonicity, what, which yeah. texts could actually constitute canon, which texts do not constitute canon, and uh, what uh, additions are uh, good enough or fit well enough into the, the main story world so as to, to, to become uh, widely used. Uh, so you do find certain pieces of fan fiction gaining fanonical status in a way. Fanonical. Fanonical, yes. Very kind nice. of almost yeah. canonical. <laughs> so fanonical status. And you can see that uh, also uh, in a way happening in the with the Coptic Apocrypha, with uh, the investiture of the Archangel Michael, for instance, seeming to have gained uh, fanonical status because we that seems to have been very popular and have had a wide uh, He's a very popular saint, I guess. Yeah, yeah. that too. Um, very popular and important in Egypt. So we have many, many texts dealing with uh, dealing with Michael. So given these similarities or yeah, shared, I guess, storytelling desires or whatever you want to call it, where do you see challenges in applying cognitive approaches to texts that, after all, uh, I mean, are a thousand years old or 
even older than that, is there, yeah, are there challenges and how can one meet these challenges? I mean, how can one navigate that historical distance? Yeah, there of course there are challenges, but uh, with using uh, cognitive perspectives, I see more uh, opportunities actually than problems because uh, I mean our human cognitive apparatus has not changed much in the last uh, two thousand years. Uh, evolution does not work that quickly, basically. So I think uh, because of that, as I all also said earlier, uh, I think we can use those insights from modern studies of how the human mind works and apply those to to the ancient materials because we can use them to fill in uh, those perspectives, those uh, frameworks, to fill in some of the gaps that uh, otherwise mm. haunt us when we, when we <laughs> look at these often quite strange to us uh, narratives. Strange yet fascinating. Strange and fascinating, yeah. yes, that's for sure. Um, I mean, it makes me want to read um, Apocrypha now, so I would like to in- invite you for our listeners to to give us some reading recommendations? Yes, uh, it depends what you want recommendations of. Of course, uh, if you're looking at uh, at theory, I would uh, certainly recommend uh, people read uh, some of the cognitive narratology of David Herman. Uh, For instance, his his Storytelling and the Sciences of Mind, uh, published on MIT Press in 2013, I think is a very useful book. Also, Schilfokone and Mark Turner's book, The Way We Think, on blending theory. Mary Laurie Ryan, for instance, too, a very important scholar that I would warmly recommend. Mark Wolf on Building Imaginary Worlds. And then, of course, uh, also, if, of course, if you want to go out and read uh, Apocrypha, there are many very good uh, anthologies of, uh, of Apocrypha published. You can read, for instance, uh, the Nagamadi Library in English for one specific uh, corpus of, of, of texts discovered in the 4th century in Upper Egypt. Or you can also read uh, more recent anthologies that also include uh, much later compositions called the More New Testament Apocrypha, edited by Tony Burke. So, so far two volumes of uh, More New Testament Apocrypha, but also uh, there's, soon there will appear a, a third one in that, in that series. So the world of the biblical apocrypha knows no end. No, it's very, very rich. And of course, uh, people still uh, produce uh, additional uh, biblical apocrypha to this day. I mean, Mm. including uh, modern movies like uh, Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ or or other biblical, filmatic versions Mm. of the the biblical story world. Of course, many of which quite uh, clearly incorporate uh, apocryphal textual materials too, but which also, without doing that uh, explicitly, are also part of uh, an apocryphal uh, building and uh, elaboration of the of the story world. So it still goes on. It still goes on. But our podcast, unfortunately, is coming to an end. Thank you so much for an excellent conversation on apocrypha and biblical story worlds and blending and the way in which, yeah, through cognitive approaches, we can... Yeah, gain a bit more insight into these fascinating Coptic story worlds. Thank you. Thank you. It was fun. And thanks to everyone listening to the LCE podcast.